0: Welcome to Bending the Arc, a podcast series that explores the everyday work of creating inclusive, equitable, and racially just communities. I'm Mark Joseph. I host and produce this podcast along with my colleagues at the National Initiative on Mixed Income Communities at Case Western Reserve University. Our episode today is like none other that we've done before. We are flipping the script, dear listeners, and turning the spotlight on ourselves. We're going to explore the story behind the University Research Center that created and delivers these podcasts. As we wrap our initial phase of podcasts and shift to a new focus, we wanted to pause and give our listeners a glimpse into who we are and what we do. Our first phase of podcasts featured authors of essays in our What Works volume on promoting inclusive and equitable mixed income communities. In our next phase, we will broaden our focus to conversations with a wider range of changemakers, organizations, and community efforts. But who are we? The folks behind this podcast. And what do we get up to at the National Initiative on Mixed Income Communities when we're not in the studio chatting it up with really cool guests? To lead our conversation today, I'm gonna hand the mic over to Colette Ngana, a doctoral fellow with our center who will serve as the guest host for this episode. Colette is wrapping up her doctoral degree in sociology at Case Western Reserve and has been working with us at the center for over a year. I will hop into the guest seat for the conversation, and joining me will be two other leaders of our center's national work. Debbie Wilbur is the associate director at NIMC, as we refer to ourselves, and a research associate at the Jack Joseph and Morton Mendel School of Applied Social Sciences at Case Western, the social work school in which we are based. Debbie serves in part in a chief of staff operations role and in part as a leader on some of our projects. She's been with us for about three years. Salen Givergies has been a collaborator and a friend for the better part of two decades now and has been working as a close-in consultant with NIMC since 2016, when he wrapped up his stint as a senior official in the Obama administration, launched his own consulting firm, SGG Insight, and joined our team on a series of projects. Some of our listeners will remember the episode I did with him on the topic of transition to a new federal administration. Debbie and Solin have been invaluable leaders shaping our work over the past few years, and they will be vital to the path ahead for the National Initiative on Mixed Income Communities. All right, let's delve into the Impact Research Center behind Bending the Arc. Colette Ngana, welcome as a guest host to Bending the Arc.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm really happy to be here.
0: Yeah, I'm excited to do this. So, thanks for agreeing to guest host this episode, which enables me to shift into the role of guest for this conversation about the organization behind these podcasts. Colette, it's been a joy having you as a part of our National Initiative on Mixed Income Communities team as a doctoral fellow. And when we were thinking about who could guest host this episode, it was great to learn that you actually had some previous podcast hosting experience and you are up for stepping into the host chair. So before I hand you the host mic, let's hear a little about your own background and what you work on at our center. I've told the audience about your scholarly trajectory. Can you say a little more about what led you to get connected with NIMC?
1: Sure. So. I'm a doctoral candidate in sociology at Case Western Reserve University. Um, My focus is on medical sociology and social inequities. So my work really centers on the interactions between institutions and individuals, particularly the ways in which housing influences our health outcomes. I saw, it was a little over a year ago, I believe, um, a post about a research assistantship opening um, at NIMC. And I was excited by the idea of researching and learning more about mixed income communities. That was something that I hadn't previously had experience with. Given my interest in housing and health, I thought it was a really nice fit. Um, so the opportunity sort of was already in alignment with my work um, and I've been a part of the team now for a little over a year.
0: Yeah, well we are so glad you found us. So tell us a little bit more about the study that you're currently working on with our partner Alyssa Nickel.
1: So Alyssa and I, um, along with some colleagues at UC Merced and MIT, are leading a study on pathways to housing justice. Um, Just to be clear, housing justice is this overarching framework that we can use to look at the historical and systemic factors that have sort of created housing inequity, right? Usually along our social identities, so things like race, class, gender, disability, Our part of the study is looking at grassroots and legislative efforts aimed at advancing reparations and housing justice. Um, So as we know, sort of these historic and systemic efforts um, often result in extractive practices and policies that disadvantage certain groups. And reparations aims to stop those extractive practices while repairing and reconciling the harms that have occurred because of those practices. So, in particular, we're we're focused on um, long-standing housing equity programs like inclusionary housing and what we can learn from reparations to help advance things like equity and to combat anti-Black racism, right? Not only in newer approaches to housing development, but also those that are already in place.
0: Excellent. Well, I think we've got a topic for a future podcast emerging. We look forward to seeing what you and Alyssa come up with. And also a shout out to Dr. Amy Carre, who is uh, one of the partners on that work.
2: Absolutely. uh, Initially
0: got that kicked off and listeners will be very familiar with her as a fellow co-host to the podcast. All right. Well, over to you, guest host. Would you like to greet and welcome my fellow guests for the episode?
1: Absolutely. So today we are talking with Debbie Wilbur and Salen Givergis. Welcome to Bending the Arc. Thanks for having us.
3: Wonderful to be with you guys.
1: I know Mark provided some background on each of you for our audience in the intro to the episode, but let's hear a little more about how each of you came to be a part of the NIMC family and your roles with the Center. Debbie, how about you get started first?
2: Awesome. Thanks so much. Most recently, I was working with families experiencing homelessness in the San Francisco Bay Area. I came to a point where I wanted to do deeper thinking about why families become homeless and what we can do from a policy perspective to prevent homelessness in the first place. I decided to pursue a master's in public affairs from UC Berkeley, and I moved to Cleveland in the middle of my degree program. For my capstone project, I worked with an organization that was planning to expand to Cleveland's east side, and it gave me my first exposure to the amazing work being done here. I eventually met Mark, and as he told me about NIMC and this role that he was soon gonna be hiring for, I knew it was just the right fit. I love that at NIMC we think deeply about community, belonging, anti-racism and inclusion. The work aligns so closely with my values. And I love that I get to spend half of my time thinking about internal organizational strategy and development, and the other half of my time working on a project right here in Cleveland.
1: We'll talk about that more in a bit. Thanks, Debbie. And let's hear from you, Salin. How did you get connected with NIMC, and what have your roles been?
3: Thanks, Colette. As with many things IMC, my connection starts with the illustrious Dr. Mark Joseph. I came to know Mark as work as he was writing, I think this is correct, Mark, your first book. Mark was a grantee and a close-in partner of the Annie Casey Foundation, having served that foundation in a number of thought partner roles as it was thinking about comprehensive community change work. And I was one of the leaders at Casey Charged with understanding the lessons emerging from our place based work, uh, considering some of the strategies, policies, and domains largely, quite frankly, unfamiliar to the foundation, like housing, transportation, regional development issues, the role of anchor institutions, and other people in place drivers of economic and social mobility. And I learned a lot with Mark. We got actually quite close as colleagues and as friends. Uh, And that's nearly, if I'm getting the math right, almost 20 or so years ago now. And Mark and I have stayed connected throughout my time uh, there at Casey. Shortly thereafter, I joined as a senior political leader in the Obama administration, um, having the chance to work across a range of uh, place-based policy priorities. Um, And then as I left the administration, became the founding director of the Mixed Income Strategic Alliance, which was a partnership between NIMC, the Center for the Study of Social Policy, where I'm a senior fellow, and Urban Strategies Incorporated. Um, and we now co-lead uh, impact work, social impact work at the Washington Housing Conservancy. And so it's been a long relationship where uh, not only with Mark, but within NIMC, and it's a great, uh, great to be a part of the family.
1: Thank you, Debbie and Salen. I'm going to shift things back over to Mark. Although a couple of us are sort of new to NIMC, as was just talked about by Salin, this is work that you've been doing for a while now. Can you give us a little bit of background on the center, sort of what are the origins of NIMC?
0: Yeah, for sure. So it's an exciting time, actually, to ask that question, because we've got our 10th anniversary coming up this fall. So November 7th will be our 10 year anniversary. So let's see what was going on a decade ago. We had completed about a decade of research on the topic of mixed income transformations around the country, starting with uh, work in Chicago. And Salen referenced the book that uh, the Annie Casey Foundation helped to fund and sponsor, Integrating the Inner City, The Promise and Perils of Mixed Income Public Housing Transformation, which comes out of a seven year study of what Chicago was up to in the realm of public housing transformation. And we had bounced off of the work in Chicago to then begin to look at work in some other cities and then eventually being a part of the uh, National Choice Neighborhood Initiative, a very first baseline evaluation. So we had done a range of research. The research was turning up ways in which the initiatives were being successful, particularly in physical revitalization, but raising a bunch of questions and concerns around the social side of transformations and the economic side of them. And so our work was uh, kind of teeing up some questions and ideas and recommendations. And so we were kind of pivoting from uh, being researchers in this space into being a resource. And we were getting contacted by more and more folks around the country, whether that be policymakers or developers or practitioners, other researchers who had questions about mixed income transformation. And so we were kind of answering and responding in a bit of an ad hoc way. And then we realized, you know what? There really is a demand out here, an interest in this policy arena, which seems to just be growing. More and more cities, more and more mayors, more and more uh, developers getting into mixed income development. And as we looked around the country, we saw other centers that maybe had part of their focus on mixed income, but there was no one place. There was no go-to place Mm -hmm. for understanding what is going on in this field. And so we figured hey why don't we try being it we called ourselves the national initiative on mixed income mm-hmm. communities because we thought we'd give it a try we would take that initiative and see if we uh, created that resource and what would happen so the good news colette is here we are 10 years later mm-hmm. and many 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 projects and i know we'll get into some of them um, around the country and actually in some other countries like canada focused on this topic so That was the origin. In the early days, we knew we wanted to continue to do research, but perhaps move into some other areas like consulting, um, like connecting uh, individuals and practitioners in the field, and providing information about what was going on in the field. So that was kind of how we got our start.
1: Nice. So I'm going to ask again, Debbie and Solon, for both of your perspectives on what makes NIMC unique and valuable.
2: Well, one thing I love about NIMC is the team's willingness to really hold ourselves accountable to our own personal growth and anti-racist journey. Uh, We spent our retreat last fall discussing what does it mean to have a healing-centered approach and what would it look like? How could we individually and corporately foster safety, dignity, and belonging at NIMC? And we really dug deep. Uh, I just feel so honored to work with individuals that are willing to do this work. I think we can more authentically call our partners into this work since we're engaged in it
1: ourselves. And Salen, what about you?
3: Colette and Debbie and Mark, I, I think there are lots of ways in which the center is unique. Increasingly, you're seeing so many more centers that are focused on equity, inclusion, and justice. I do think from day one, as Mark was just talking about, the focus on mixed income communities, uh, the lessons that are emerging out of them, uh, the fact that there's still quite a bit of aspiration around what they could deliver uh, in place and for people. I think that that focus has brought a level of uniqueness to the center. Having a center at an academic institution, not that unique, I can imagine. But having one from my vantage point that is focused on partnering throughout the change and implementation process. I know Mark and I have been in conversations where the use and the frame of a partner that we're talking with, where they will use academic. And the way in which academic gets used is just in the research, just in the knowledge, but somehow the relationship is done, I think NIMC evolving into this kind of full service operation, really not just about the ideas that are emerging, but we're gonna actually help you implement those ideas. So our partners, I think have grown accustomed to a relationship with NIMC where we are vested in the goals and outcomes that we all share together. Uh, it's not just, and Mark talked about the consultancy and I'm much more engaged with NIMC on on the consultancy part where you know NIMC may be involved in, in creating some products and, and the kind of classic set of deliverables that a consultancy would do and other services. Uh, but I've been a part of where NIMC actually adjusts ourselves to the conditions and circumstances of the community, of the partner, figuring out a way to say, look, if we're vested in the goals and outcomes together, how do we necessarily change in order to meet the need? And while that can be uh, energizing and invigorating and frustrating and inviting us all to kind of uh, ask the question, should we be doing that? I think ultimately, having the conversation about what the work requires and who's going to step into the various roles that are necessary to pull off the work, I think is is a way in which NIMC can be quite powerful and is unique from my vantage point.
1: So Salen, you had mentioned, you know, the connection of NIMC to the academic world. And sometimes we sort of separate our scholar from the practitioner. So I'm going to ask you, Mark, sort of what does that feel like, especially in those early days of, you know, NIMC, sort of knowing that you are a professor, but also really having your heart in the work of working with community. What might have been some challenges in, in, in marrying those two parts of yourself, but also you know, making sure that NIMC as it was emerging was, was staying true to, to that as well.
0: Yeah. Thank you for that. That's a wonderful question. And, and how does it feel and how did it feel in the early days? I mean, it, it really felt like stepping into my full self and having at that point been on the academic journey, depending on how you count it coming up, maybe you'd call it 20 years from starting my master's studies, and then the PhD, and then a postdoc, and then the early junior academic path to being a faculty member. And I guess at that point when we started the center, I had just gotten tenure. So which many of our listeners would understand was the the beauty uh, and the uniqueness in the in academia of having a lifetime appointment. And so it was a moment of having been on that kind of path to grow as a scholar. Uh, one that I'd never intended necessarily. I always saw myself as more as a hands-on, get out there, make things happen type person in the real world. But at the same time, loved critical thinking and loved learning and reading. And um, what I was discovering was there might be a pathway to do both. And had started doing some of that with particular research studies and particular consulting work. But with the center, it suddenly was like, That is the entire mode of being, as Salen described beautifully a moment ago, is we wanna offer ourselves up to clients and partners and collaborators in being able to bring both the best thinking and research and evidence and analysis to any given social problem, but not just saying, well, then good luck, Uh, here's what we know, Uh, let us know how it goes, or we'll sit here and watch you while you do it and tell you what you are or aren't Mm -hmm. doing but to really step over that line into what should we do and how should we do it? And so gradually the consulting has really been an opportunity to unleash uh, that side of like, let's see some things happen. Let's make mistakes along with our collaborators, but also let's be there to learn and give feedback uh, and help with course correction along the way. So it's felt great personally. I think what's felt even better is with the center being able to then recruit a whole team of folks who feel the same way. Mm -hmm. And so when Debbie told her story a moment ago, and you know, Debbie, you're in my first conversation, was not at all about, hey, I've got this center. Do you want to come work with us? It was like, here I am in Cleveland. Here's what I've done in the past. I'm a practitioner. I make Mm -hmm. things happen in the world. But I'm trying to go upstream. I'm trying to understand what's going on. Why is this happening at a broader level? And so to have Debbie, and then to be able to, you know, it's our center, so why don't we create a position that works for someone to be both on the chief of staff internal side, mm-hmm. helping manage the organization, but also totally be out there on the ground with us in particular projects. So I could go on and on. I mean, Solomon is another example of someone who was in the practitioner policy space, but clearly was hungry, especially Solon, as you came out of the Obama administration, for a chance to kind of think about and consolidate what you had learned, what you had been seeing while continuing to be very much on the front lines of advising and guiding the work. So it's felt like creating a kind of space where we can push back against any kind of sense. You have to make a choice between either being scholarly and objective and building evidence or making things happen and being in practice. So that's been super exciting.
1: Yeah, thank you. I, I especially appreciate that as somebody who's new to NIMC and also, you know, trying to finish up my my dissertation and completing my my doctoral studies, that the opportunity to come to NIMC and also feel like I don't have to battle between wanting to be more community focused while also being very much interested in the this sort of deep dive in the research and that more sort of cerebral, I guess you could say, um, work And that there seems to just be space for all of it, right? So it feels really special, I think, as a student to be able to learn from people who are doing this work in so many different ways. So thank you for that. Um, and speaking of the work, um, I'm going to ask all three of you uh, a question just sort of you know, what is the actual work of the NIMC, right? So talking about the roles, the services, and maybe a little bit about some of our partners.
0: Sure. Well, maybe I'll just name our pillars again and then open up to my colleagues here to, to weigh in from their experience. I, I said it a moment ago, but just to name them. Um, first of all, is certainly research evaluation of a variety of forms. We do basic research, so these are questions we come up with on our own and we go and seek funding to go explore. Um, one of those for example was a study of effective neighboring and we really wanted to get onto blocks and watch neighbors doing neighbor, neighboring with their neighbors. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that was a, a project that we weren't asked to do by anyone, but you know, being scholars at a academy, we can kind of create our own studies. A lot of the work we do is evaluation based and that is where someone is doing a piece of work, whether it be the federal government, or city government, or a developer, a nonprofit, or a foundation, and they come to us and ask us for help building out a learning, a plan, a learning approach to that. So we do evaluation, and we do also scans of the field. So some of the listeners who are familiar with our work will know about our scans, where we'll kind of look across the mixed income field on a subject like resident services in mixed income development, or social dynamics, and kind of draw upon what folks are doing, trying to take a look at promising practices out there in the field. So that's on the research side. We've mentioned consulting a number of times, and we consult at a variety of levels, which is also very exciting. So once again, whether that's directly with the federal government um, testifying to Congress, whether that is with other national organizations, uh, foundations, uh, community development associations, and then a lot of our work is in specific places. And so in specific cities, specific neighborhoods, and we'll partner with a city department um, with a local developer that's working on a particular initiative, uh, with a nonprofit that might be a community development corporation. So we have a wide range of actors that we do consulting with. And then, as I referenced, we like to do work where we connect uh, individuals with each other for peer support and peer learning. Mm-hmm. Uh, I recently took a group for, from the Bay Area in California to Toronto, Canada, to visit uh, Regent Park, which is a mixed-income development there, and. Uh, some of our listeners will be familiar with Regent Park. It's the largest one in the world. Uh, it will be seven, 8,000 units uh, when it's completed. Wow. Uh, but it's also one that's just got so much that we can learn from over its last 15 years. And so sometimes there are folks who have not heard of it. And so what we can do is then not only tell them about it, but actually set up and broker a visit uh, to it and help really design that around what that group is looking to learn. And then kind of where we started was information provision. We, When we started 10 years ago, we didn't really know how many mixed income developments are there in the country, right? We knew about some of the ones funded through the HOPE 6 program, but we suspected there were others. So we collected that information and ended up putting it into a database. And so that was something that we provided for the field, this database on mixed income communities. We built a library on mixed income topics. So uh, Colette, for doctoral students like yourself who are starting out and wanting to know what's out there, we kind of did the work to get a platform started. So there was a one-stop shop for literature on mixed income development. So we kind of provide that information provision role as well.
1: Great. I'm going to ask Debbie, um, since you have this sort of unique role of doing both some of the internal administration as well as working with communities. Um, Can you tell us a little bit more about, you know, the types of roles and and things that you do at NIMC? Yeah,
2: I feel like I have the honor of doing a lot of things and working with uh, everybody on our team uh, and also having the opportunity to dive deep onto one project. But, on the, on the organizational side, it's everything from supporting our hiring, uh, professional development, um, some traditional HR roles. We have a group of wonderful doctoral students. Uh, Colette uh, started as one and then became a fellow. We have three other incredible s- doctoral students. We've had a master's student working with us, so really just supporting the team to grow and to work on the projects that they are focused on. And then working with kind of what I think of as the back, you know, more of the back of house of uh, things like making sure everybody is paid and uh, some non-glamorous things that when they don't work efficiently, people rightfully get really upset. So always trying to do that more efficiently and, and obviously accurately. We have a a group of folks that are doing that, and, and there's a lot of collaboration within the university on those systems and processes. And then right now, I have the honor of doing a really deep dive on a local project here in Cleveland. We have been hired by the Cuyahoga Metropolitan Housing Authority to provide coordination of the Woodhill Homes Redevelopment. And we helped the housing authority and the developer apply for funding from HUD and received a 35 million dollar grant for uh, through the Choice Neighborhoods Initiative. And now we're two years deep into implementation. Mm-hmm. And I, um, one of the the pieces that I'm working on with that project is supporting our home repair program. That's part of the neighborhood piece. So really, our 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 hope with that is to dive deep on uh, providing opportunities for residents in the, in the full Woodhill community to uh, obtain clear title if they have uh, title challenges and then access a lot of home repair dollars that uh, are coming in through the choice. And our hope is that Um, By helping residents to tap into as many different programs that they qualify for, that they can really improve the value of their home, uh, build generational wealth, and ultimately minimize displacement of residents from the community as this redevelopment takes place.
0: If I could just jump in on this one, Um, I know we'll come back to it later, but this um, home repair effort. And the role that NIMC is ending up playing in it is a wonderful example of our flexibility Mm
2: -hmm. to
0: follow out an issue once we hit on it.
2: Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: Because um, we knew home repair is just one of, I don't know, 80 components of this initiative, which is a very comprehensive community initiative, but a very important one for the neighbors around the redevelopment to make sure that as housing is being redeveloped, they are benefiting in some way. And very often what you see when these redevelopments happen is the new housing and new development and maybe gentrification starts to set in place, but the existing homeowners aren't able to improve, aren't able to benefit, and in some cases end up being displaced. So we've got this opportunity and these funds to do home repair, but your question is around the work and what it looks like. And in this case, it looks like talking to neighbors on a block, literally knocking on doors and going out and understanding what home repairs do you need? And in Mm -hmm. fact, also being a part of some home repair projects. So Debbie was out as part of a spruce up. Uh, I don't know if you were painting or planting or what you were doing just three weekends ago or something. So part of it is literally being out there, on the ground talking to folks who ultimately will be benefiting. Part of it's talking to the organizations that do this work. So Debbie's been talking with Habitat for Humanity, for example, who will be one of the partners Mm -hmm. to understand what they're already doing in this area. Part of the work is then realizing there's this whole issue. Debbie is now becoming an expert on <laughs> tangled titles. So for homeowners...
2: Scratching the surface, to be clear.
0: <laughs> for homeowners to be able to get access to home repair funds, they need to demonstrate that they have clear title to their homes. Okay. We hadn't really anticipated this as an issue, but it turns out this is a massive barrier mm-hmm. to folks being able to take advantage of this. So Debbie is now working with our law school, And just recently had um, an engagement with the law. There's a clinic at the law school of students who can work with local nonprofits. Well, they partnered with us. So part of our work is a finding that partnership, bringing the law school into this project uh, and this initiative. And then finally, just a conversation this morning uh, with the director of the community development department at the city around the home repair program and talking about how to help the city departments and the nonprofits figure out how to partner even more effectively in making these new funds available. turned out the director was very well aware of this tangled title issue. So Debbie and her had a great conversation. So we just get to touch so many pieces of the ecosystem, as Solon, I think, mentioned that word a moment ago. So it makes our work uh, challenging, to be sure, complicated, to be sure, but um, incredibly gratifying to be able to kind of pull all that together.
1: Yeah, Debbie and I have had, I think, many conversations just on like what my work around housing and prevention, particularly, I focus on burn injuries. So, you know, how can we build housing or repair housing in such a way that helps people, you know, stay healthy, right? So they don't have this particular type of injury. Um, and I think I love sort of in the conversations we have around the work that we're able to kind of weave together, mm-hmm. you know, the different projects right. and how they relate and, and what does this mean for for helping communities. And then also, Mark, what you were saying that I thought was really great is that this idea of being able to provide information on how to navigate these mm-hmm. systems to the community because sometimes that is such a barrier to doing the work, you know, as you're talking about with titles that, you know, it's it's not just that with NIMC we provide information that is sort of talking to other academics, but also this very key information on, you know, how can we maximize the programs that are in place to help people, you know, get the housing that they need, stay in the housing that they have, repair you know, the housing that they're already in so they can be healthier, happier, have better communities. Um, so it's nice to sort of see how all of this ties together. One
2: thing to add to that, my hope is that we're not just helping families navigate the system, but we're shifting the system mm-hmm. so that it's so much simpler to navigate. And that has been, that's hard work, mm-hmm. but I think that's the important work that we we can do and need to do um as we access the system and change the system so that it's so much simpler for residents to get the support that they need
3: one thing that strikes me in the last you know five to ten minutes of our conversation uh the word that kept on coming up for me was relationship and when you were asking colette mark about what it felt like for him to kind of maximize all of who he was not only a scholar but you know there 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 are scholars for very legitimate reasons who celebrate their detachment mm. right mm. who equate objectivity with space in the relationship and one of the things that has been striking in my own relationship to all of the NIMC team but also for mark is the willingness to be in relationship and when you were just describing Debbie, the work of uh, door knocking and being present with neighbors—that's relationship, and where trust has been broken, you know, relationships and the building of relationships matters. And Mark, I remember in the early work that you did, scholarly work, you spoke about the brokenness in relationships, well-intended strategy, but brokenness of in and among groups of people that I think this work requires a level of kind of vigilance. And so that I would put on, it's not that in the work of learning and evaluation, there is not the credible objectivity that might require a level of space from who's evaluating to the work of the ground. But I think it's never prevented NIMC for asking the question again what does the work require? And are we willing to be in relationship with people for the change that they seek? So that was the first insight. This last bit of conversation on title uh, is not uh, a small one. Because if we think about the increasing wealth gap, you know, title and the absence of clear title has always been a clear indicator of dispossession particularly of communities of color, right? And so while again, it was an eligibility for home repair, you can imagine that giving people secure title enables them to maximize what it means to be an owner. And we've had hundreds of years of dispossession where this notion of who in the ancestry actually has title to the home, it's just nationally, it's been a huge issue nationally and it's great that IMC you could have easily thought about that Debbie, like that's not in my, that's not what I am charged with doing, but for uh, current homeowners to feel like the transformation effort that is happening there actually also relates to them. Because again, Mark, I remember this notion of who is this change for? Is this change for me too? And this was a way I think for NIMC and the and the community there to demonstrate that this this change is for everyone. How can everyone benefit from it?
1: So the work that all of us do, right? Um, Debbie, I think that you put it really well that it's not just sort of understanding how the the systems work, but also trying to shift them. And that's really difficult work. And so I was wondering a little bit more about, you know, what are the particular values and principles that guide the work of NIMC?
0: Yeah, this is an interesting time to uh, answer this question, and it will give the listeners really good insight into how we're evolving. Uh, so I'll start, and then Debbie uh, is our value czar at NIMC. So this is, this is really her question.
2: I think we need a softer title for that.
0: <laughs> All right, we'll work czar on that. czar kind
2: of contradicts <laughs> the values, but we'll, go ahead.
0: That's, that's a good point. So we had a set of values. We had a, an exercise maybe a good six or seven years ago with the staff. Uh, this is well before Debbie joined us, where we went through kind of a values identification exercise and thought about a range of things and what we were about and we landed on these six that we were super excited about and they've carried us through till today and they will continue to carry us so uh, those are sense of purpose thoughtfulness balance growth accountability and interdependence and then we went through a range of different really cool conversations about what does that actually mean how is that reflected in our various forms of work And we've got little things we do, like actually every two weeks, uh, someone on the team uh, gets an award uh, and it gets kind of passed around uh, around the values and someone has been practicing them. So we've you know, that's where we've been. But I'll toss it out to Debbie to talk about kind of where we're headed as we've done more reflection on the kind of meaning and weight behind our quest for greater inclusion and equity and particularly how do we become more and more of an anti-racist organization? So Debbie, where are you leading us?
2: Yeah, so it's really exciting I mean the the values that we started with obviously are solid, and there's no question that those are beautiful things to aspire to. But as we shifted towards what we call NIMC 2.0 and really thinking about what does it mean to bring an anti-racist lens to this work, we started talking about okay you know he, having a healing centered approach is really critical to that work and what does it mean and and so we um looked at a lot of work that was done around that and really identified three uh, elements that are critical for a healing-centered approach, and that's safety, dignity, and belonging. And so last fall, we just had a beautiful time with the team, really digging into what those meant to us individually. How do we live those out? How do we live that out corporately? And and that was an, a critical shift for me of Not necessarily yet saying, like, those are our values, but, like, this is how we want to live and be together as a team before we even think about how do we go out into the world. And then this spring, we dug even a little bit deeper. And we read some work by Adrienne Marie Brown and started thinking about fractals and sm- the idea of small is all and these small things that we do have such ripple effects. Um, and And we also read a chapter about the three sisters garden uh in the books braiding sweetgrass by robin wall Kimmer. and she talked about the garden and how corn beans and squash work so beautifully together and one of the quotes from that book that I love is that when individuals flourish, so does the whole. And I think this idea of community and sharing of our gifts is is just this aspirational vision. We created an NIMC garden and totally we nobody knew what anybody else wanted to be in the garden. And man, did we create the most beautiful whole garden that had shade protection and plants and worms to nourish the soil and tools to work the soil. And I just was such a beautiful example of the team, each bringing team members, each bringing unique pieces to the team and uh, that together this idea of really growing a beautiful garden, which to me then is our launching into the next stage of what does it mean to take this out into the world, but that we have such a strong foundation in terms of common language and approach to do that.
1: Salen, did you have anything that you wanted to add?
2: Yeah, I'll just
3: add a quick, no, I, 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 I'm, Thoroughly sold by what Debbie just actually said there, uh, and want to be a part of the garden, uh, literally <laughs> and figuratively. But uh, I'll I'll say this uh, again: given some of the work that we're doing within IMC here, you know, we have a team of people, and it's a diverse team that has a tremendous amount of skill. But the kind of values and principles that find expression on our team, and I'm going to be looking for Mark's. Uh, nods of affirmation as I mention these words, as he thinks about the team members, you know, authenticity, um, honesty. Uh, It's an aspirational team. It's a trusting team across uh, team members and our partners. Uh, Our colleague, Frankie Blackburn, uh, speaks about wisdom being everywhere and being Mm -hmm. able to seek it everywhere with a level of humility and curiosity that become important drivers for us. So these are yes words but as Debbie and Mark have already said it's you know living into these words. I'll mention one last thing that has really st- struck me in the work. You know, we are a a hopeful and aspirational team believing often in a future that seems quite different than the current and sometimes toggling between what you hope to see and living into that future while people are, including ourselves, are just wrestling in the present and the now. And there's there's a gap. And sometimes we have these conversations about, are our sights too high? Are we inviting our partners to stretch too much? Um, But I think there is this sense across all of us about, uh, the need for change and impact, the fact that it is possible and that we have these moments where if you create the right kind of conditions and operating culture, you start seeing that gap close between that kind of aspirational future and and the present and the now. And so I'd put that in the mix is this this notion of being able to see beyond the now. Uh, where, you know, that seems really tough at times for, for all of us in the work.
0: Wow, it's so beautifully stated, Salen. Uh, Colette, I realize Salen mentioned the team a number of times and we've made reference to them, but probably would help uh, to make sure our listeners understand, well, who is this team? Mm-hmm. Where is this team? Mm-hmm. Um, because we are large and um, we are in different places around the country. So Colette, Debbie and I are currently in Cleveland, which is where we're based at Case Western Reserve University. And our team here, if you count our wonderful doctoral students, is probably around 10 of us uh, here in Cleveland. Solon is Zooming in from Washington, D.C., which he's based in the D.C. area. And um, we have some other team members there I'll come back to in a second. Um, We've got a couple other members of our full-time team who actually live in other cities. And so we've got Dr. Amy Carey, I mentioned, who's in Chicago, our research director. And we've got Dr. Alex Curley, who's in the Boston area. Um, who And both of them are research assistant professors at the Mandel School uh, at Case Western. So they're able to uh, be fully with us, although living remotely. Uh, you heard us mention Alyssa Nickel, who is uh, one of our team members, also based in Chicago. And then we've got in, in D.C., uh, along with Solon and myself on some projects there, a really large, close-in consulting team. Solon just mentioned Frankie Blackburn. And so Frankie and Bill Trainer of Trusted Space Partners have been longtime partners with NIMC. And a lot of these values and principles that you hear us saying is from uh, really learning alongside them um, and drinking deeply from a lot of their wisdom uh, being in the space for, for many decades. And I just want to shout out um, also Brick and Story um, in uh, the D.C. area is another key partner uh, through which folks like... Uh, Latoya Thomas and Yardine uh, Avent and Kiati Desai work with us. So we've got a big team of folks around the country and very, very lucky to be working with them all.
1: I think that just for me also in terms of values and principles of NIMC, even in this conversation, I'm just realizing how important it is for us to go into the work really thinking about like an abundant environment that there's space for all of us we all bring something to the table um that there's something we can learn from everybody to like no matter what your role is like somebody will have something very valuable for us to to learn from and I think that that is a unique experience that I've had in the academic world um not as much competition and much more abundance and there's something here for all of us to really really share in. So I, I deeply appreciate that too about this team. And, you know, we've we've been going through sort of work and roles and, you know, kind of looking back on NIMC and just wondering if, if any of you have some insight into, you know, how this work has evolved or how your roles have changed over time.
0: Yeah, I'll just say, quickly, because I think the listeners are probably getting a sense of it at this point. Mm -hmm. This move from kind of researcher to consultant, and now with the Woodhill Buckeye Project that Debbie mentioned here in Cleveland, uh, Choice Neighborhoods Initiative Implementation Project, uh, very much a practitioner alongside our colleagues and collaborators in this massive public-private sector partnership to do what will ultimately be probably about a $450 million transformation of a large public housing development within this uh, Buckeye neighborhood in Cleveland. So the role has really evolved now where we are at the center alongside the housing authority coordinating that partnership. And so as I tell people, there's probably 20 odd meetings in any given week on that initiative. And our team is probably leading, facilitating maybe 15 of those. Uh, across our partners. So we've really evolved to be able to turn, you know, again, the the lessons learned and the evidence emerging around mixed income communities over a couple decades into everyday operational work uh, in making initiatives happen, which is tremendously exciting. I think as Sal made reference to, it does raise questions from time to time about are we too close? And there's a project, and Solomon will probably refer to it in a moment again, about uh, in Washington with the Washington Housing Conservancy, where we are both on the consulting side and on the learning and evaluation side at the very same time. And so that might uh, perk listeners' ears up a little bit to say, wait a second, how can you be doing the doing and doing the learning at the same time? But that's kind of how we do it at IMC is like, we're going to, if that's what is required in this particular situation. We're going to figure out how we can do it to the best of our ability while continuing to ask questions and encouraging our partners to ask questions to keep us accountable to making sure that we, and in this case, we have one team that's working on the learning evaluation side, another team that's working on the consulting side, um, so that appropriately the learning evaluation work can be seen as uh, useful and objective and valuable and um, but a willingness to kind of blend those roles in service of what's trying to be accomplished there. So that's been a wonderful evolution.
3: Colette, I'll I'll add to that just even in the illustration of what Mark had mentioned in the Washington Housing Conservancy. This uh, that project, Mark and Debbie may think uh, uh, may have some additions here, but that project has been an interesting illustration of the evolution. Um, And I'll track back even before the Washington Housing Conservancy to some of the origin story of how did they even come to find out about NIMC. We had been engaged in a learning exploration, we here being the mixed income strategic alliance with NIMC taking the lead in a set of learning exploration projects for the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation on mixed income communities and the social determinants of health. and so. Lots of rich work that emerged out of that, lots of products and deliverables that emerge out of it. You always wonder, who's going to read your stuff? Well, it just happened to be that one of the key leaders of the Washington Housing Conservancy had been thinking about some of the key questions that were emerging out of that work, one of them being that this is more than a real estate play that there are a whole set of impact questions that are emerging out of that work. As she is uh, uh, pondering those questions, she ha- you know, comes across those learning products, reaches out to us, and then essentially puts on the table, could you help us build a, a strategy? Yes, you've listed these issues, you've listed these promising pr- approaches are you gonna put your money where your mouth is and are you gonna help us actually build something here? And that's a number of years ago now where it started from that first exploration to a strategy development, to numbers of phases of strategy implementation now, and um, and including a learning and evaluation aspect to that work which makes it again, always interesting. So this, this cycle of being a center that does put a premium on research and knowledge, but is not afraid to stop at that enterprise. And when someone asks the question, or when we ask the question, like, "Are you going to do something about the insights that that research and knowledge generate, Are you going to help us do something about what you've said?" You know, the, I think the answer from NIMC has often been yes, and. Uh, my part of being of the family is is evidence of an IMC's answer as yes.
1: So we have a few more minutes left, and i I wanted to kind of go back to um, something Salen, that you had mentioned earlier in our conversation was just that, You know, at NIMC, we really do like to remain hopeful, Mm. Um, but there's this, you know, there's the reality that the larger sort of society that we operate in does not always reflect the values that we hold, Mm. right? Um, Even in the days before our conversation today, we were seeing that the Supreme Court had made some um, very historic rulings to roll back, you know, protections against discrimination, When it comes to affirmative action, last year we saw, you know, the long-standing sort—I think it was almost 50 years—we've had Roe v. Wade. That is no longer um, nationally guaranteed. um, Sort of reproductive rights. Uh, We also have LGBTQ rights sort of being rolled back, and um, it can be a little difficult to kind of stay hopeful, positive um, when you see sort of these larger. Influences, you know, happening that kind of work against some of the the things that we're trying to do here at NIMC. So in the time that we do have, um, I I was just sort of wondering if the three of you could, you know, give us a little bit of a, a personal pledge, you know, sort of a an appeal regarding maybe action steps that will will help us sort of you know bend the arc toward moral justice, um, and just share a little bit of your your personal um, perspective on that.
0: I'm happy to kick it off uh, and uh, really enjoying being on this guest side of the conversation. Uh, I've asked that question to so many guests. It's a neat moment to have it asked to me. But yeah, a a neat moment, but a devastating moment, right, in our society. And so I think my uh, commitments, um, both personal and to others, um, very much reflect my thinking about what, what we should do. In light of that kind of national moment, and so the personal um, commitment is to continue something I've just started relatively recently, which is keeping an eye out for someone in my workspace, work sphere, who um, really seems like they could use a word of encouragement, who is seeming on the edge of burnout or maybe burned out, uh, maybe isolated, maybe frustrated. Uh, And sadly, there are many, many, many of these folks in our work. And of course, we all will offer encouragement. What I've been trying to do lately is really take time to offer a pretty substantive uh, message of encouragement. And uh, what's been striking is just how appreciated that's been by folks and how many folks have said um, you would not believe how timely that word of encouragement was. And just saying, I see you and I see you staying standing in the face of all these forces um so i i pledge to continue that because i think that's something that it it takes a little extra intentionality but it really pays off
2: can i jump in really quick and just remind you that that came from our conversation about values and intention setting and that was an intention that you so i love that you have taken that and continued to live it out
0: i have and thanks for the initial prompt that sent me down that that path So my appeal to others, um, again, trying to stay very, very practical, would be think of someone in your social network who holds different perspectives from you, has walked a different path from you, and make an intentional um, invitation to a conversation with that person. Uh, I think in moments like this where we feel under assault, we feel like what we believe in is under assault, we tend to hunker down and we tend to have conversations with people we know are going to agree with us and we know are going to support us. We know will help us feel better. And we might shy away from those conversations we think will just be even more annoying or harmful in this moment. I just would encourage each of us to uh, take a small step of identifying one person uh, to have that conversation with. And I think once you see how that goes, that might lead to... uh, uh, a, a positive spiral of more and more of those types of conversations
2: when I think about my personal pledge, I was reflecting on this, and it had been a pretty rough week and um you know, I think my initial gut is like run away, and I just always have to remind myself that when I am experiencing the feeling really discouraged by all these things that are happening at all these different levels, right, Um, to take a deep breath. And I always, uh, as my tattoo demonstrates, like a tree to be grounded and rooted and just reminding myself um, this is a long game. And uh, to surround myself with people that are, on that journey with me and that it's it's okay to feel discouraged. Uh, there's a lot to be discouraged about, but to remain committed to the journey and uh, to do so in community. And so to continually uh, build community and find folks that are, that are on that path with me. Uh, and then I'm going to take a slightly different tack on the action step question And I am going to appeal to anybody that is listening that knows about Tangled Title and has some (laughs) ideas. Reach out if you want to share your successes, your challenges. If you're in Cleveland and you want to help us with this, um, maybe you're sitting on a pot of money and you want to help create a Tangled Title fund here in Cleveland I don't know who's out there, but um, (laughs) we are really wanting to, uh, I don't want to say solve it, but come up with a pathway to help um, homeowners to get clear titles so that they can really build wealth and stay in the community. So if you've got ideas or funds, whatever, reach out.
3: I don't know how to follow Mark and Debbie and all of you, but Colette, I I do appreciate the setup, uh, and uh, I, I'm remembering that uh, I was in D.C. I was actually right outside of the White House when the Supreme Court case came down and it just took uh, it took the air out of me. I think we at some level for all of the news that was happening, you know, there's been this prediction that the, that the case was going to come down, but the the word that kept coming to me that has been just sitting in my mind and given having been a former policymaker and a lawyer and a civil rights practitioner and all of these roles that all of us have had over time, I've thought of the word affirmative and what it means in the space that we all occupy, including what I'll mention in a moment about my personal action step around affirmative. You know, affirmative in what you set up, Colette, is not just stopping wrongdoing. It is literally taking additional steps to remedy. And so the this notion of people, as happened in the case, to say, we're just going to decide the discrimination is over. And we're going to make an announcement and a pronouncement that operates ahistorically, falls on deaf ears and deaf hearts, as like, that's not enough. Affirmative action is necessary to correct the wrong so you know i am still hoping for and believing aspirationally in our ability to persuade to influence to convince people that to correct hundreds of years of wrongdoing is not just deciding that the red light goes up that we actually have to do more and so for my uh, part of that i have realized realized it when i was in leadership in the Obama administration, the importance of narrative and personal storytelling, and the desire and the need for us to be much more willing to be vulnerable with each other across all of the lines of difference. Mark mentioned being in in relationship and seeking out people who think differently and coming armed with stories. And so I have spent more time over the last number of years excavating my own life for what stories should be shared. And I expect to be doing more of that and inviting more people to share their own stories so that we we see ourselves more clearly um, as part of the need to seek a more just future that we need and to do that affirmatively, to really invite people to take uh, more action that is necessary in sharing stories. So story t- sharing and storytelling, I think will be a part of my affirmative action step moving forward.
1: Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. Well, thank you to Mark, Debbie and Salin, um for sharing with us today. Um, special thank you to Mark for giving up the, the host chair for a little bit and letting me step in. Um, and as always, thank you to our guests for tuning in.
0: Great. Thank you, Colette. So good to be with you. Many thanks to Collette Ghana for guest hosting this episode of Bending the Arc and to Debbie Wilbur and Salen Givarghese for joining me for the conversation. To learn more about our work at the National Initiative on Mixed Income Communities, please check out our website at nimc.case.edu. Our podcast is produced and edited by Davey Barris, from Case Western Reserve University's Media Vision. Funders supporting this podcast have included the Kresge Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the PNC Foundation, and the KeyBank Foundation. Thanks for listening and thanks for sharing this podcast with anyone you think would enjoy it. Be on the lookout for a special upcoming episode series focused on the social impact work of Urban Strategies, Inc. One of the nation's foremost community change organizations. Until then, keep doing your part to bend the arc.